Hey, Andy Fortuna here, and I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to listen to Connect and Move Radio. If you are a licensed practitioner, such as a massage therapist, athletic trainer, acupuncturist, physical therapist, etc., who wants to use manual therapy and therapeutic exercise in their practice and become the go-to practitioner for health and performance, then I highly recommend looking into the holistic movement-based practitioner course I have created. This is a three-day live course with three-month remote mentorship to help you apply all the elements of the course into your own practice. If you are the practitioner who believes in treating the person as a whole, enjoys spending one-on-one time providing hands-on care, and loves helping people improve their confidence, their movement, and their inner self, then this course is for you. We go into detail about practical assessment and manual therapy skills, movement programming, and energy meditation work. You can find more information in the description at the bottom of this podcast or on my Instagram page at AF underscore move. That's AF underscore M-O-B-E. You can also reach me at my email, andy at myorenew.com. That's A-N-D-Y at M-Y-O-R-E-N-E-W.com. If you're interested in being part of an in-depth and immersive education experience, then take the time right now to send me an email because this course is only open to six students and has an active waitlist, so don't wait to take and make the decision. There's an application and interview process to make sure that the course is right for you. So if you believe this course is the right fit, make sure to sign up. Thanks again for listening and enjoy this episode. Hold up. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Connect and Move Radio. I'm your host, Agni Fortuna, and today we have a very special guest. I know I say that all the time, but I just really feel that everybody's a special guest, and I need to say that. So again, we have a special guest, and this time we have Nicole Serdeka, and I definitely messed that up, but she'll definitely correct me afterwards. Uh, she's a physical therapist, strength and conditioning coach, soccer coach, who specializes in rehabilitation, performance training in youth to professional athletes. She co-owns a concierge-style practice in Los Angeles with her husband, Mark, and teaches a continuing education course called Managing the Uninjured Soccer Player. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. No problem. And please correct me. How, how do you say We were just t- talking about this. <laughs> no problem. Everyone gets it wrong. It's Nicole Sertica. Sertica, I, I was close. I from having the easiest last name to pronounce to <laughs> getting married and taking on inheriting one of the more difficult last names to pronounce. Mark Mark is a good guy. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's worth it. Are. He's worth it's, it, yeah. <laughs> um, so, Nicole, I mean, give us give us your, your journey. Give us, give us uh, your story. Yeah, so I grew up playing soccer my whole life, um, came from a, a soccer family and grew up in a town that was very Irish and British and just very soccer, very huge soccer culture in the area, uh, which was great for me growing up. And my dad owns a, a big indoor sports complex in New Jersey called Good Sports. So I had access to fields uh, my whole childhood, growing up, my whole childhood and adolescence, I was always, it's a, like it's an indoor complex because it's in New Jersey. So mm-hmm. in the winter times, you really can't be outside playing unless you've got your snow boots on. And um, yeah, so that was huge for me. And my, my dad is a phenomenal youth soccer coach as well. So he would always have me and my sisters, uh, you know, competing against each other. And I'd get home from school and he'd say, um, you know, if you really want to be a great soccer player, you would be in the backyard juggling right now or working on your shot or whatever else. So, of course, that kind of you know, psychology worked on me and I'd be like, oh, I do want to be a great soccer player. <laughs> so my dream growing up was always to play Division One college soccer. You know, obviously there weren't um, like I was born in the late 80s. So I give away my age a bit. Um, <laughs> But there wasn't, the first Women's World Cup was in 91 and it wasn't televised. It wasn't known about. So I didn't know there was anything beyond college soccer for girls growing up, mm-hmm. which obviously has changed a lot that I'm, I'm super happy about. But so I, I was able to play competitively growing up. And in my junior year of high school, 
I verbally committed to play Division I college soccer at St. John's University in Queens, New York. And then a few months later, I'm playing in a soccer tournament with my club team, uh, MatchFit Academy, mm-hmm. down in Tampa, Florida. And this Ooh. is November, and I break my leg. So I fractured my tibia and my fibula, requiring surgery to um, to fix it. Mm-hmm. And now this is now I'm, I'm verbally committed to St. John's. I've now told other schools that had been recruiting me that I was not going to be going there and not taking their offers and that I had made my decision. Didn't apply to any other colleges because I knew where I was going. And a national letter of intent signing day isn't until February 1st. So I, I was really nervous and scared and had a lot of anxiety surrounding the fact that I may not be able to play college soccer. Mm-hmm. And it was really the work of my, of course, my surgeon, um, but my physical therapist, uh, Sharon Wentworth in New Jersey, who made me, of course, made me physically prepared to play in college, but more so really gave me the confidence um, and helped me with the psychological aspect that I could get back to playing soccer and come back an even better athlete than I was before. That was really, it was really my injury that gave me my first exposure to performance training and strength and conditioning work. And so it ended up being really, I know this is cliche, but a blessing in disguise. I came across this amazing field of sports performance and and rehabilitation for athletes. And it ended up being my career path. So I was super grateful for that experience. And of course, I, you know, I can't go without saying super grateful to my college coach, Ian Stone, who's still there um, for still taking me after after that injury. Um, so I ended up having a great college experience. My teammates from college are still my best friends. Many of them were in my wedding two years ago. And um, that's what really led me on this path. And it was really that that kind of reflection and thinking back that in a moment where I literally felt that everything I had worked my whole life for, all the sacrifices I had made, and we always hear the jokes, you know, I can't, I have soccer, but that was truly my my adolescent experience, you know, friends going out on weekends or birthday parties, even class trips, and I had to say, I, I can't, I have soccer. In eighth right. grade, my, my class went on a, there was the eighth grade class trip, which was the big class trip of, of school, of middle school. Mm-hmm. I went to see a Broadway show up in New York City and out to dinner, and I was able to go to the first part of it, and my dad literally had to drive an hour and a half up to New York City, pick me up before the Broadway show started to drive me back home to New Jersey so I could go to a soccer tryout. <laughs> so, um, wow. you know, it was, it was a moment of all of those sacrifices I felt were going to be fruitless and that I wouldn't be able to achieve my dream. Mm-hmm. And the work of my physical therapist um, to get me back to feeling that I could and then actually being able to achieve that lifelong dream. So now I feel that it's really my mission in life to come in when athletes are feeling that hopeless, um, that hopeless feeling and losing confidence in their ability to come back and do what they love and helping them get back into it. So that's where I'm at now. Awesome. And then how long have you been practicing now as a physical therapist? I've been a physical therapist for four years now. I went to Emory University in Atlanta where I met Mark, my husband, mm-hmm. who's also a physical therapist. And okay. we live in Los Angeles now practicing here. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, you have a great story, right? You're an athlete, um, had this major injury, which I find that a lot of people that go into this profession, uh, I myself in a, as an athletic trainer, uh, PT, other PTs, chiropractor. I mean, a lot of times when we go into the profession, I feel like similar similar situations. Like for me, I I injured my back my junior year of college, and I didn't play that year. A very big important year, especially down here in Miami, uh, for baseball because that's when you're getting recruited. Your senior year, you're basically like you mentioned, you're basically already signing that letter. You have verbally committed by that time, and then by basically February, January, you signed that letter of intent. Um, I, de- I technically, no, not technically, I didn't have that uh, coming out of uh, high school. So I can definitely feel your uncertainty because, um, you've, you know, again, you've worked your entire life, right? All these sacrifices um, to a sport that you have complete passion for. 
um, and then it's ripped from you in a matter of seconds, right? And tip fib fractures, those are no, those are no joke. Um, yeah, I still have an IM rod. I had an irregular wow. rod in my tibia. I've gotten the three screws taken out, but that rod's still there and likely staying there for good. <laughs> so basically, you know when it's about to rain or snow. Yeah, exactly. And people <laughs> think that that's, you know, like not a thing. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of like um, PT students or like physical therapists um, kind of make fun of that. Like, oh, like my patient thinks they can tell the weather because of the metal in their leg or whatever. And yeah. that's, I truly believe that maybe it's just my experience and maybe it's just kind of my, my belief system, but mm -hmm. I truly believe that I can feel that when it's going to happen. Hey, and I mean, you being a physical therapist yourself, you can, you know, preach to the choir when it comes to patient, like, Hey, trust me, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, I feel you. <laughs> so, I mean, as an athlete, first and foremost, you have a particular set of skills and not just physically, mentally. I mean, you mentioned this injury. Um, and we'll go into um, everything else as well. But this injury, like you mentioned, the mental side was what most people don't really think about. They think about the physical injury damage per se, right, in air quotations. But they don't think about the mental side that it takes to come back and to compete. And actually, at this point, when you were competing or you're trying to come back to compete, um, you were competing at a whole different level. You're trying to go yeah. into this collegiate level that it's – you go from high school that – Obviously, you have people in high school that are really good and some people that, you know, make the team. They're good. Uh, they're coachable and stuff like that. But then you have the standouts that make it to collegiate and make it to that professional level. So when you get to college and you have, um, for example, in baseball, there's 40 people on a team and 40 of those guys are top recruits. So it's not like you can, you know, lousy days ago, come by, you know, go into school, walk into campus and be like, OK, cool. I have, you know, this spot that I have um on this team is, is secure absolutely not you are from day one right each day in practice even the day before the game you are fighting to be on that starting lineup so that mental side and i think that's what you were mentioning that that pt that you worked with was working with you not only the physical side but was getting you mentally ready to get back onto the field yeah and i think you make such great points there right so I'm actually, it's funny you mentioned this. I'm actually writing a blog on this right now. Um, okay. So in athletes, I think we've typically, or is historically, not, not so much anymore. I think there's been a paradigm shift. We've seen it as like, okay, the tissue is healed. You can play. Mm -hmm. But we're forgetting about this, the whole psychosocial side of it. And it's huge in athletes, right? And I think that when the biopsychosocial model and the, all this education and pain science started to become more popular and more mm -hmm. ubiquitous th throughout the rehab world and the performance world. I think that initially the, the knee-jerk reaction was, oh, this is great for patients with persistent pain. Mm -hmm. But in reality, this is huge in the athletic population because this is the example I like to give is if you meet me for the first time or maybe not so much anymore, maybe a bit of it, but in college for sure, if you'd met me then, I would say, hi, my name is Nicole and I'm a soccer player. Not, hi, right. my name is Nicole and I play soccer. And mm -hmm. there's a huge difference. That's not just semantics, that's identity. So who a per who an athlete is, is so wrapped up and embedded in what they do in their sport. So it's not simply oh, I'm sidelined with this injury and I can't play my sport. It's I'm sidelined from an injury and I can't do something or participate in something that makes me me. Mm -hmm. So it's really we're working with somebody with an identity crisis on our hands. And I think that to overlook that is a huge fault and can lead to poor outcomes. We really need to understand that, address it, and, um, you know, make the athlete aware that we get that and that we're here to support them from that psychological aspect to help them come back. And we're in their corner, you know, we're on, we're on their team now, we're on their side and we want to get them back as safely and quickly as possible. Um, so I think that addressing the psychological and the social factors within the athletic population is huge for outcomes. I've, I mean, 
again, having that athletic background, you know firsthand, right? When you work with a patient that's an athlete or a patient uh, that's a recreational athlete, maybe they're not doing it professionally, but for them, it's a, it's a stress relief. It's their yeah. escape, right? So when they're out of commission from that, how do they deal with stress, right? I mean, you mentioned a big point where, where it's guidance and support. I mean, it's the cliche uh, saying where the, I guess your, your patient won't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. Mm-hmm. And that care has a lot to do with being empathetic and understanding where they are. And, and even if it's an ankle sprain, right? Um, for them, it's like life. It's like life altering because right now they can't play their playoff game that they've been working for the entire season. So to them, you know, it might be the scout that they've been waiting for to be in front of and to play. Um, now this injury, for whatever reason, has taken them, taken that opportunity away from them. Um, exactly. So that guidance and support that you, you're mentioning um, is, is, is super, super important. It's, it's that model that we're talking about now is that's becoming more uh, mainstream, I think mm-hmm. you mentioned, which is, it's crazy because you would think that the... As, as a practitioner, right, you you would be treating the person. But a lot of times, especially coming out of school, right, coming out of school, you're getting, first of all, you have to learn all these special tests. You have to learn all these um, just protocols, right? You're trying to figure out that the person in front of you, that you can help them with their injury. But a lot of times, helping them with the injury is helping them how they're reacting towards that injury. And I think sometimes um, that's the missing link a lot of times, too, with um, patient care. Absolutely. And I think, I actually think that it's the, it's the lazy way out to just Mm -hmm. sideline someone immediately. Of course, like, so an acute injury. So right after an ACL injury, right after, like right after my tib-fib fracture, of course Mm -hmm. I can't go on a soccer field and play. Right. But can we find ways to incorporate their sport within the rehab process? And not because I think it's important that they work on especially initially, I don't think it's important that the rehab professional um, works on like technical aspects of the game. That's not what you're there for. That's what the assistant coach is for or the head coach. Mm -hmm. But I think from a psychological perspective, it's huge to, instead of doing, if you're doing RDLs or you're doing reverse lunges or even just single leg balance, can -hmm. you incorporate a soccer ball or whatever their sport is, a tennis racket, a football, whatever. Um, And again, not because we need to be working on their technique with them, but because it's something that is familiar to them. And and it's, like I said, it's part of their self-identity. It's who they are. And they want to be able to express that again. So I think that that's a a huge factor that that does get overlooked a lot. Um, And I I think it's important for athletes to feel supported and, and feel good about returning to their sport. And I, I like to refer to the consensus statement on referred to sport that Claire Ardern is the lead author on it's from 2016. And mm-hmm. basically they talk about the return to sport continuum and it shouldn't be this one magical day that we circle on a calendar that, okay, you're going to go back on the field with your team again on May 7th, 2020. You know, it's, it's more of a, from day one, we're having these conversations and incorporating their sport. It should be a very gradual process, you know? Okay, we've done linear running in in the clinic. You can go ahead and do all the linear movements during the warm up with your team. Or okay, we've we've done some triplanar movements in rehab. We've done some lateral agility work. You can go ahead and do all pre-planned movements in training with your team and gradually progressing them that way instead of, all right, I tested you, you're pretty strong, you can go ahead back with your team um, on, you know, on this calendar date. So I I think that we are getting there, but I I think that there's still a lot left to be desired um, in the rehab world in regards to that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's like you mentioned, it's keeping them in the game, even though they're not in the game. Just yeah. because they're not on the field, you can't. I mean, again, just the smallest thing of uh, incorporating that soccer ball gives them the feel of them being on the field. You know what I mean? And that's especially when it comes to um, their their. I'm losing the word here, but their um, feel of being in the game, right? Mm-hmm. Their feel of not being 
their fear of missing out, I guess, yes. is, is the best way for me to get to that the point. Isolation that they feel. Exactly, because at that point, all their buddies, right, um, are on the field, right? Their teammates are on the field, and they're meanwhile sidelined working on these exercises, right? Mm -hmm. To them, and that's where a lot of times too, where I feel, especially as an athlete, because uh, I was both an athlete and a student athletic trainer, so I was able to see me as an athlete when I would get hurt or my, uh, my uh, teammates when they were hurt, but also too, I would have to help these athletes that were hurt. And a lot of times they were so either depressed or angry and rightfully so. I mean, again, like you mentioned, their identity at that point was unknown. If they weren't on the field or on the court, then they were really nobody because everywhere they went, especially in a college setting, because um, in high school, I mean, you still have that, but in college setting is like, you're known to be this person the entire time. And if the bigger the school, the more well-known you are. So once you get that stripped away from you, it's like, who am I? But having these specifics, right, having these specifics, having these, uh, keeping them in the game as much as possible, even talking to them, even if it's just like mental um, imagery, like, hey, I want you, the last five minutes, I want you to think about you being in the free throw line or in the penalty shot. What are you thinking? What are you, you know, not only are you helping them stay in the game, but you're also helping them combat that mental strength that we talked about that your physical therapist basically worked with you before you even got back to the game, which was really important. Um, I mean, we got to the point where, again, you got hurt, you got helped by the PT. She gave you this concept of PT that, that I mean, wasn't necessarily mainstream, right? She was working physical, but she was also working the mental. Um, and then you saw that as importance and you're like, I gotta, I gotta incorporate this in my own practice, which even led you to becoming a physical therapist. Yep. So at this point, the biopsychosocial model um, is super important, especially when it comes to patient care. Talk about more so um, why do you do you work more so with soccer um, athletes or you basically work with the general pop or I mean, anybody really in the athletic realm? Yeah, so I, I do tend to work more with soccer players, um, footballers. Um, whether that's, you know, like attracts like, and I get, that's what I'm putting out into the universe. So that's what I'm getting. Um, or, you know, my, my content on social media is obviously right. very niche and soccer heavy. Mm -hmm. I do have athletes from some other sports as well. And then I also, um, I have a, a client who's, who's just, you know, general, um, wants to stay healthy as she ages, um, right. type of client. But I do tend to mostly get soccer players. A lot of times, what do you feel um, is one of the big issues that you have uh, working with soccer players, being that it's more of your realm, I guess, per se, as far as the niche that you have kind of created through content creating? What are like the, I guess, the pain points uh, for soccer players? And then, I guess, for practitioners working with soccer players? Well, first of all, I'll say my practice is very unique in that, so I'm cash-based concierge style. So I don't have a brick and mortar facility. Mm. Um, I have one that I can use when needed. Okay. So I typically tend to see soccer players on a soccer field doing kind of the on-field rehab portion. So um, that's usually after someone, usually people find me after they have been going to physical therapy somewhere that's, you know, in network and takes their insurance. Um, and then they get cleared to play, right? But they don't mm -hmm. necessarily feel confident in their ability to play yet, or they're fearful of a re-injury, mm -hmm. or they feel they just need a little bit more before they get back to playing. So that's typically um, where I come in and, and when people find me. So I get to kind of do that late stage um, where it's really more of a, a performance training program um, mixed in with some soccer specific training as well, depending on the person and what they're looking for. So I think a huge pain point is that the a lot of the times the, the system doesn't allow us to rehab athletes properly, right? Mm -hmm. So if yep. an insurance company says, okay, great, they're back to running. Um, that's all they needed to do to, you know, be at prior level of function. So um, they're good. They're, they're cleared. We're going to stop paying. And then you could be the most well-meaning, most up-to-date practitioner out there. But if somebody 
gets, you know, their gets denied by their insurance company, what are you supposed to do? You don't really have much of a choice unless the person's willing to pay out of pocket for it or, you know, make a deal with them. But we have to make mm-hmm. money too. You can't just see people for free. Absolutely. Um, so I think that that's a big pain point. And then there's also the issue of an athlete will go back to their surgeon or their, their referring physician and they say, okay, you're cleared. To, it's been six months. You have full extension. Let me see a jump. Okay, looks good. You're cleared to play. And then they come to us, and we have to be the ones to tell them, hold down, hold up, you know, slow down. You are not ready to play right now. We can get you on a soccer field and doing some things, mm-hmm. but this is not unrestricted return to uh, play right now. You're, we can return you to participation levels, but not full on restricted, unrestricted play. Um, and that can be really tough. So I think those are some of when you talk to other practitioners, some of the big pain points in working with athletes, um, you know, because their, their goals are higher level than general population for the most part. So it can be tough to, uh, get insurance companies on board with that, which is really unfortunate that that's the state that our healthcare system is in. Um, fortunate for me in that I now have a great business model <laughs> that I can come in and work with people when that great. happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would prefer that everyone have access to high quality care for as long as they need it. Absolutely. I mean, that's a, and that's a model that's starting to grow uh, a lot quicker now. It was much slower even three years ago. Um, but it's giving you the opportunity to be able to treat these athletes um, in a manner where they're really getting back to the level of activity that are fairly close to where they're at, if not very, very close to where they were. And, but most importantly, they're feeling more confident um, yeah. and more educated because a lot of times, like you mentioned, the system of healthcare doesn't necessarily give you, um, or practitioners, should I say, the opportunity to really give them the experience that, I mean, that we envision, right? I mean, my, you know, I myself, uh, as an athletic trainer, have a cash-based practice, which gives me the opportunity to be able to provide that, right? I mean, the patient experience that you're able to do in, in this model um, and to, to have complete autonomy with your patients is is a dream come true, really, for any practitioner trying to do what we do, you know, which is which is a very a great opportunity to be able to have. I mean, you mentioned two pain points. The system, which is, was the insurance-based um practice and model that doesn't really, I mean, it gives you 12 sessions. It gives you to the bare minimum of you being able to have that range of motion and strength. But when it comes to realistic performance, um, there's still that gap, which your practice and uh, has really, has really uh, filled that gray area, right? That gray area from, all right, you're more or less pain-free, but you're not really at 100% performance. Come with me. Let's work with you. Let's have this journey that we're talking about, that journey of that continuum right, that you've uh, mentioned from not only from restriction, but all the way through performance and throughout, right, providing that education. And then you mentioned also early return a lot of times um, from these docs that, again, mean well as far as when it comes to the patient is good to go, but not necessarily ready. Um, And then are there any, like, popular or common pain points from the actual athletes that you feel like it's just a you always hear about it. I don't know what it is. Um, when it comes to injuries in soccer, uh, maybe if it's dealing with the coach or dealing with certain things or whatever it is, are there any like uh, common pain points from the actual athletes that you have or that you actually uh, seen? From what I've seen, I, th- I think youth players tend to have this fear of, well, if I don't get back for this tournament, then I'm going to get cut. Or mm-hmm. um, if I don't, play in this practice and coach isn't going to let me, you know, play it. Let's say I tell someone, okay, you can play 30 minutes of your game on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want you to take it easy in your practice on Friday. Um, they'll say, well, if I don't, if I don't practice really hard Friday, coach isn't going to play me Sunday. So right. I think, I think that there, um, I, I actually think that those issues are all resolved by simple communication. I think if we as, as rehab professionals and, and, uh, practitioners would reach out to coaches and, you know, send them an email, give them a phone call and just say, Hey, you know, I'm working with so-and-so on your team. She's able to do this. Um, so would it be fine if she just did this in practice and then she can give you 30 minutes in a game unrestricted, you know, just have a simple conversation 
tell them where you're coming from. And I think that we back away from that a lot and I'm not sure why. Um, so I think we could, we could really benefit our athletes if we had those conversations more. Um, as far as some other pain points with athletes, I think it's really just, they miss being with their team, especially, mm-hmm. especially an athlete who plays a team sport. It's that those are their friends. That's, you know, who they spend most of their time with and, and that's what they have fun doing and they just miss doing it. So, um, I think that's probably the main pain point for athletes is that they miss being out on the field. They miss spending time with their friends and maybe they're a little bit fearful, um, about what their coach might think or what their parent might think or their Mm -hmm. teammates, things like that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I would see it all the time. And you, you do have those athletes, right? That they have a little, little, uh, Nick, like, ah, I can't, I can't play. I can't do this or I can't do that, which kind of, you know, makes a bad rap for anybody else that typically gets an injury. Right. But, um, also too, you have this pressure from the coach, right? You have this pressure from, uh, parents, right. That spend all this money on travel team or spend, uh, or the coach again has invested the scholarship on you. So you decide, that you, uh, not you decide, but you get injured, unfortunately, and he has to say whether you play or not, right? Which, again, for an athlete, being on the roster, being on the lineup um, is a big deal, and you work hard for it. You work hard yeah. Monday to Friday, um, well, should I say Sunday to Sunday, really, waking up early, uh, going to weights, uh, going to practice, you know, being there before practice, being there during practice, being there after practice, right? I mean, you, you sacrifice time and time again to be able to perform. Um, but, and I think, again, too, like you mentioned, I think the most important thing is that communication. I know for myself, uh, I, had, I was fortunate enough to have coaches that understood that. They said, hey, um, hey, you're injured? No problem. Make sure that the athletic trainer sees you um, or make sure you're getting taken care of. Make sure you go see the doctor. Make sure everything's good. But, again, you also have the other spectrum of coaches that are like, ah, don't worry about it. Just put some ice on it. You'll be fine the next day. And we're like, coach, no, like, like my hamstring, I can't run. Yeah. <laughs> um, but again, I think I think you made a really valid point. I think as a practitioner, um, working with these athletes, um, working with these players, I think it's important to reach out. I think it's intimidating, right? You want to talk to this person and you don't want to feel like you're telling them what to do. But in a sense, you kind of are. But with the full intention for the athlete to be better. And I think um, I think having that, the intention is one is, is important, but also the delivery <laughs> of that yeah. message, right? You want to you don't want to be like, hey, coach, uh, sorry, your, co- your player's out, bye. No, I mean, explaining them within reason, you know, certain things that are happening and what, I mean, like you mentioned, hey, uh, so-and-so won't be able to play full, uh, full out game, but, you know, first 30 minutes and then, you know, try to keep it, uh, have a deload throughout the week to where uh, the athlete's not doing too much. So they're able to uh, work while the healing process is, is you know, uh, taking effect in a sense. But I guess to that, to that extent, what has been um, a good way for, your, for you to approach that, whether it's a parent that you have to talk to or a coach that you have to talk to about an injured athlete uh, and telling them, hey, listen, you, you kind of have to take a break or worse sometimes when it comes if it if it comes to that point hey i'm i need you to take a couple of weeks off or a couple of days off and then come back and see where you're at like what's what have you found is the best way to go about the, having that conversation well i think an important aspect is we all have the same end goal and i think just getting everyone on the same page and recognizing that you all want the same thing everybody every single stakeholder wants the athlete back on the field playing the best that they can that's mm-hmm. everyone's end goal. That's that's the end game. Everyone's going to have different opinions and different perspectives as to how that happens and when that happens. And that's fine. That's normal. Um, you know, that's natural that people with different perspectives have a different opinion on what that's going to take to achieve that goal. So I think if I like to envision every stakeholder, all the key stakeholders sitting at a round table and everyone just inputting their their viewpoint, you know. So rehab specialists saying, or healthcare professionals saying, right, from a tissue healing standpoint, this is where they're at. Um, with the, um, you know, the mediators of, of X, Y, and Z, you know, it's playoffs versus preseason or 
they're a senior, it's their last game versus their freshman, it's preseason. Um, those are all going to change kind of how much risk you're willing to take. But um, having your your opinion on the matter and then hearing the parents, where what their perspective is, the coaching staff, the athlete themselves who should actually be at the center of all of this, mm-hmm. um, the performance uh, training, the performance coaching staff, the if you're in professional sport, the owners and the president of the club, um, you know, maybe the agent is involved if it's a professional athlete. So if we could, I like to envision that when, when going about this decision-making process and just saying, look, I am one voice at this table and I'm not the most important voice at this table. The most important voice is that of the athlete. I can sit there and help guide them, but ultimately it's their decision. Um, and everyone else's opinion matters as well. So I think approaching it that way, and then also I think it's key for us as healthcare professionals and the sports medicine staff in that setting to be aware that almost every other stakeholder's point of view is going to be, especially um, in a tournament like the World Cup, for example, like the Women's World Cup going on now, the coaching staff, the players, the fans, the media, the agent, um, the families, they're their perspective is one of right now. Can they play right now? What can they do right now? Mm-hmm. And I think we as the sports medicine staff need to think, need to be kind of that perspective, that objective perspective of how will this affect the health and well-being of this athlete at the end of this game, at the end of this tournament, at the end of this person's career, and as they go through the aging process. You know, we need to kind of be that reality check so to speak Mm -hmm. um but i I think the best approach is get everyone at that table to recognize that we have the same goal and it's fine that we have different opinions on how to get about how to go about attaining that goal we just have to listen to each other set ego aside and put the athlete at the center of that plan wow first of all if to all the listeners right now if you are not writing this down um, you guys are missing me both here. Um, she said a lot right there. I mean, again, she's a previous athlete. She's gone through it herself. So she understands not only the uh, medical side, she understands the patient side, the athlete side. Um, and then working with these patients and these athletes, she also understands where parents and coaches are coming from. But this round table analogy, I think is perfect. But like you mentioned, I mean, you hear about it, patient-centered care, right? But in this sense, it's athlete-centered. And then I mean, the roundtable analogy gives each person, right, like you mentioned, each stakeholder a voice, which is important, right? Because you don't want to drown out people because then they feel like they're not getting heard and then feelings get hurt and then things escalate when they don't need to. Mm-hmm. So you have the practitioners, right, which I would probably call the mediator of the whole orchestrating the whole thing. Um, you have the coach, you have the parent, you have the athlete and then stakeholders, like you mentioned, if there's owners involved, if there's others, um, agent uh, is involved. Um, but I mean, the one in the center of this whole thing is the actual athlete, right? And like you mentioned, the goal being the health and sustainability of that athlete. So yeah, we, there's a couple of decisions being made. Like you mentioned is the, is the immediate one. Okay. Can they play or can they not? Okay, fine. They can't play. How long is it going to take? And then actually as, as the practitioner, you're making the decision and having this timeline realistically and where they're at. Um, but I think you also mentioned a super phenomenal important, right? Because people think about return to play, but nobody thinks about, all right, your career is over or your career. You had a great career. Now what? Right. I mean, you mm-hmm. see it. You see it with uh, uh, American football players, right? With concussion stuff. You see it with you name it. I mean, uh, any sport, there's there's a, a negative aspect to not taking care of injuries um and just putting a band-aid or just or just giving them the opportunity to play right now without having the not understanding the consequences afterwards and i think what you just mentioned longevity and sustainability is what comes to mind right because the athlete is the center of the table it's not the goal of winning a championship obviously um everybody wants to win the athlete um, themselves has worked hard to be able to work towards that championship cup world series whatever it is um but also too at the stake of what like if they get to that point and they can barely walk because they have to 
this hip issue or God forbid an ankle issue, whatever it is, if, if we're not putting the athlete in the middle of this and making them in the center of this and then having um, everybody else involved having a say in the sense or being heard, I would say being heard is better. Having okay. a say might be a little bit, but being heard because then you have multiple uh, perspectives and each part playing a role because obviously each person in that on that table cares you at least you would like to think care yeah. about the about the about the well-being of the athlete sometimes care might be more the monetary side but mm-hmm. um yeah i love that round table analogy i really I mean, like there, there's plenty of athletes who you give them that information like hey i don't want this to affect how you move around and walk when you're 50 you know yeah. you might get early onset arthritis or whatever else you know, the risk factors might be in the future, but there are plenty of athletes who are willing to take that risk. And that's Mm -hmm. fine. That's not our place to judge. That's their decision. It's their life. True. We do need to educate them on it. But like I said, there are plenty of athletes who are happy taking that risk and saying, you know what, this is a world cup final. I don't care if I get, you know, arthritis in my knee 10 years at 50 versus at 60, (laughs) you know, it's, it'll be worth it to solidify my place in history and and win a world cup for my country. And that's fine. Um, But there are also the players that once you educate them on that, maybe it changes how much risk they're willing to take. Maybe it's just an international friendly, or maybe they're a high school athlete um, and they have plenty of time to grow and develop into their sport. Mm -hmm. And so we take a little bit of, of a less risky approach. And that's why I think context always matters. Context truly is king in these decisions because you can have an athlete, two different athletes with the same exact injury, and they're going to have a vastly different experience with it. And the way that they return to sport, the time it takes to return to sport, how they feel once they return to sport is all going to be very contextual or context dependent. Um, So if we take a a youth soccer player versus a professional soccer player, you know, the, the professional soccer player, let's say they're going to be a, a free agent this summer and they want to make sure they are playing this season so that they can get the best deal they can in the summer transfer window. Mm-hmm. So maybe we get them back a little bit sooner. And if you're working in elite sport with professional athletes, you need to get comfortable very quickly with getting people back to sport before you feel that they're 100% ready. Because the truth of the matter is, if we only let people play when they're 100% ready, we're not going to be able to field teams. <laughs> so yep. you need to get comfortable very quickly with getting athletes back to playing before, say, they have optimal tissue healing or before they're 100% ready from a physical standpoint, a tissue health standpoint. Of course, we would all want more time for athletes to rehab and and up their training load, but that's not always the reality. And and truthfully, that's usually not the reality. I mean, in the youth level, we have all the time in the world. What are they rushing back for? mm -hmm, You know, mm -hmm. maybe we want to get them back for a college showcase tournament, um, and that's fine. That's something that maybe is a risk reward conversation. But um, we can take longer with youth athletes. And I think that's a big difference because I get a ton of athletes who say, well, Adrian Peterson came back from this injury in four months. Why can't I? Aside from the fact that genetically speaking, Adrian Peterson is a freak and you, quite frankly, are not. Right. Um, you know, that's that's the professional's job. They are there to perform. And a youth athlete, you have school, you have an after school job, maybe you have homework, Mm -hmm. you have family and friends um, and those commitments. So you can't give all of your time to rehabbing and training. A professional athlete can. So all of these surrounding the the psychological and the social factors play a huge role in something that we used to think was largely biologically driven. There is fire being spit all over this episode and i love it <laughs> this is great I'm, I'm having such a great time uh listeners listen if you're not if you are not stuck to this uh episode right now you guys are a little lost but it's okay you guys are doing well um yeah nicole i mean you you're you are really bringing in a lot of valuable valuable information and i think sometimes too i think like you mentioned a, a big aspect is context right 
each person is not the same. Each situation is not the same. Um, it's called triage for a reason. There's certain re- there's certain things where you kind of have to do your best to kind of get them back and then work with them afterwards. At, you know, at the same time, uh, obviously within parameters. But um, yeah, I think I agree. Dang, that was good. <laughs> that was very good. Roundtable analogy, longevity, sustainability, and context matters. Yes. By the way, if you didn't if you didn't catch that. Don't worry, we'll, we'll do a little review at the end. Um, before we go into, I mean, the resources that you have uh, put in place with your courses and stuff like that, and then your content, um, give us a, a day in the life in your clinic or, I mean, in your in your practice. Yeah, so I have a wake up early and usually I have a client who I see seven days a week from 6.45 to 8.45 in the morning. Um, and then... I'll generally see um, two to three people in the morning. Then I usually have um, afternoons available where occasionally I'll have a client here and there. Usually afternoons is when I spend time on things like reading research, Mm -hmm. um, social media, um, spreading my, growing my course and spreading it to new locations um adding to my course I feel like I'm always even last (laughs) night I'm laying in bed reading an article and I was like shoot I have to add this in my course somehow (laughs) so um that's what I do during the middle of the day I'll also get a workout in at that point in time then in the evenings um usually I'll have another client or two um before having some dinner and going to sleep and doing it all over again that sounds like a pretty good day yeah, I, I love it. I don't think I could go back to being in an outpatient clinic um, 40 hours a week. I, that's not, it was not conducive to my style. Um, and I didn't feel that I was giving my best care in that in that environment. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I love what I do now. You know, I'm able to take the time I need with athletes, address their concerns and not be worried about how am I going to bill insurance for this? Um, and I get time to walk my dogs and work out and, and do things that I'm passionate about. Like, you know, my podcast, my blog, my course, uh, my social media, things like that. So a couple questions. First one is dogs. What type and name? (laughs) Second, wait, before you go. Second workout. What uh, type of workouts you like to do and favorite movement? Um, Yeah, that's all I got right now. Then I'll keep going. Okay, so my dogs are Rosie and Kai. Rosie will be seven this summer, and Kai is about one and a half right now. We've had Kai for about a year, and um, we've had Rosie for six and a half years. Um, What type of dog are they? Rosie is a German Shepherd Border Collie Australian Shepherd mix. She's about 50 pounds. She looks like a German Shepherd, but she has like coloring. But (laughs) she has the face, the personality, and the body type of like an Aussie or a Border Collie. Is that like a Lassie, a Border Collie? Uh, Not exactly, but but similar. Um, Mm -hmm. And then Kai god knows what he is he's they're both rescues so i mean rosie that's my best guess as to what she is she could be anything so kai we have no idea he's 20 pounds of like pure love got it yeah yeah that's exactly it he'll he'll come in like i'll be working on the computer mark will be working on the computer and he'll just jump up and sit in your lap like so um so gracefully just comes and lands in like a full sit staring at the computer as though like he's the one doing the work um he has crazy amounts of energy but then also will come and like cuddle in in the nook of your neck as you're falling asleep so he's been he it was difficult at first it's always difficult having a puppy Mm -hmm. um and going from one dog to two dogs I think can be a jump but um, I can't imagine us without him now. That's awesome. I mean, dogs are professional cuddlers first. And oh, then absolutely. After that, you can say run, sniff, hide, whatever it is. But professional cuddlers first, and then whatever <laughs> whatever their breed is specialty is. Playmates for. after, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, I love dogs. I have a rat terrier myself. Which, oh. by the way, I've I've named him Ace Ventura 
um, because he's so hilarious. And Jim Carrey is one of my favorite actors. But um, yeah, Ace, he's uh, he's going through a little trouble right now. He's uh, he's uh, destroying stuff right now, and I think it has uh, a lot to do. With, like uh, he is uh, thirteen, I think. Oh. I think he had he's going through some. I want to say midlife crisis a little bit, but yeah. also too. Um, so he lives with my parents, but he uh, he doesn't like to be in closed spaces for long mm-hmm. periods of time. Um, but he's doing his best. But okay, so Rosie and Kai, Jer- yes. I know I- German Shepherd, and the other one is the unknown Kai, we don't know. love beast. No idea. Got it. Yep, unknown this little twenty pound ball of love. <laughs> um, and then your second question was. Uh, workout. What is oh, your favorite movement? My favorite movement. I um. I love. If, trap if there bar, is such a thing. Yeah, I love trap bar deadlifts. That's okay. that will kind of always be my go-to. If I just kind of if I walk to the gym and like don't really have a set plan in mind for that day, my go-to is to grab the trap bar or to get in the squat rack and do some back squats. Got it. Um, those are those are my two go-tos. I also love um sumo deadlifts. Okay. Um, I'm not a big for for myself um programming wise you know it all it always depends on the individual (laughs) but for myself i personally dislike doing front squats because my arms hate it (laughs) Uh, or not my arms my my, like thoracic spine doesn't like it which means i should be doing it more probably um i also don't love conventional deadlifts for me um conventional for the listeners just uh explain that conventional deadlift the conventional deadlift would be like what you see people doing in a gym, like deadlifting, you know, just, um, a typical deadlift movement with the barbell. Um, sumo would be with your, with a wider stance, your feet a bit wider and also turned out a bit. It's more comfortable for my hips and my low back that way. So that's how I do it. Um, and I'm also able to move a lot more weight when I do it that way. So that makes me feel good. Um, I also love, like, I'll go to like, Goblet squats is one of my go-tos. Um, mm-hmm. All all lower body. I, I have to force myself to do an upper body day. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So now that we've learned a little more about you, let's learn a little more about your uh, course. Yeah. So it's called Managing the Uninjured Soccer Player. And the UN in uninjured is in brackets because I, I think it's important that we learn to work with athletes before, during, and after, as a soccer player specifically, before, during, and after an injury, and keep them uninjured as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So, um, day one of the, it's a two day course, and it, it counts for um, con ed units for physical therapists. I'm in the middle of getting approval from the athletic training board and also awesome. the NSCA for performance coaches, strength and conditioning coaches. Um, but the first day covers the most common soccer injuries. Um, so ankle sprains, um, medial knee injuries, ACL injuries, hamstring strains, groin and hip injuries. Um, mind you, that is only known for male players because we don't have that epidemiological data for women's players quite yet. Hmm. Um, so those are the most common men's injuries um, in, in soccer. Probably pretty similar in women, although I'd say female athletes, female soccer players, from my anecdotal experience, tend to get more quad strains than um, like groin issues mm-hmm. and also more bony injuries um, than muscular in general. Um, and then, of course, the ACL injuries are highly impactful, um, but not not the most common knee injury, but but still very impactful injuries. Mm-hmm. So that's all day one. I talk about those injuries, um, rehab progressions, and really um, the the principles that behind um, the rehabilitation for those injuries. And then, and also, I add in some some ways to add soccer into the clinic with those injuries. Then day two, I cover uh, the return to sport decision making process. So kind of a lot of what we've talked about you know, including the biopsychosocial model and pain science in um, working with the athletic population. Uh, I talk about training load and how I have interpreted the research on that and how I track that with my clients and athletes. 
Um, programming from rehab to performance. I think that that's an important topic as well. And we get to practice that in the course. Injury risk reduction programs, you know, popular dynamic warm-ups like the FIFA 11 plus on-field rehab. And day two is really fun because I put you through dynamic warm-ups and injury risk reduction programs and on-field rehab progressions. There's a lot of uh, fun games and competitions involved. So basically what you're saying is if I like to work with athletes, especially with soccer athletes, I need to take your course. Yeah, that's essentially what I'm saying. And and I perhaps it was unfair of me to label it just for soccer players, although those are that's kind of what I specifically gear it towards. Mm-hmm. But everyone who's taken the course has said, I can use this with all of my athletes. And that is true. It, maybe I should just call it managing the uninjured athletes. But um it is geared more towards soccer players. Like I, I talk about soccer specific progressions. I talk about, I, I start the day two with giving a little bit of information about soccer so that when somebody comes in and tells you, I play outside back and my team plays a four, three, three. So I need to get up and down the field a lot. You know what that means. Um, and, and just the little, like the, the physiological demands of soccer. So it is more specific towards soccer players, but there's certainly a lot that you can extrapolate to other athletes. I mean, I think that's super important because um, a lot of times like you'll get an athlete, right? Um, and if you're not necessarily used to having that athlete, you're not really sure what one, okay, cool. You can get them uh, stronger, maybe even reduce some pain, but what are the requirements to get them back to performance? And I think uh, definitely, especially a course like this gives them that opportunity, gives them that experience in, in a nutshell, um, but opens the conversation and gives them that process, that thinking process, right? That knowledge to be able to now explore um, the traditional kind of strength conditioning paradigm, but now make it more specific to performance to an athlete and especially a soccer athlete. I think that's pretty exactly. cool. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, like kind of my three main guiding questions when I see anybody is what do they need to be able to perform? What mm-hmm. can they currently do? And how do I safely get them from A to B? And um, we talk about that a lot in the course. And I think a big issue has has historically been that we underload patients because we don't truly understand what they need to be able to perform. So Mm -hmm. in my course, I go over what they need to be able to perform um, so that we can help guide their, their rehab progression into more of a performance training so that they can become prepared for the demands of their sport. Awesome. How many people can attend this course? Um, I can take up, if I get 30, I need to, um, bring my husband along to, (laughs) to help out. Um, just because from a certification standpoint, it, there needs to be like a specific ratio, Ratio. Mm -hmm. um, because there is a a lab component to it with the on-field rehab stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I mean, I'll take however many want to come. It's just, can, can Mark come with me and help me out? Or, you know, can I get someone else to come and help me out? Um, I typically, you know, I, I've gotten, I've had five people sign up and I've had 25. So kind of anywhere in that range. Okay. And where are, I guess, where have you taught and where are you planning to teach? Yeah. So I've taught it in New Jersey, LA, San Francisco, and Boston. And in July, July 13th and 14th, I'm teaching in Cary, North Carolina. Um, there, I have two weekends in August that I'm teaching. One is in Chicago, and then one is in Atlanta. Then I am teaching the first weekend of November in Orlando. I'm currently setting up a weekend. It'll be either the first or second weekend of December in Denver. I will potentially be doing something in October, like a one-day seminar type thing, so not exactly my course, but mm-hmm. similar information in LA. And then in February, I'm going to Australia. Um, and then setting up some more courses um, internationally for next year. That's awesome. Sounds like you have your year, uh, uh, a busy year. That's good. Yeah, getting a lot of air miles. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. 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 I mean, we've gone through a lot of information here. So Listeners, I hope that uh, you have written some things down. If not, there's always rewind. Um, let me give a little recap. Um, I mean, we talked about Nicole's journey from athlete to PT 
and the importance of mental strength, especially when it comes to the biopsychosocial uh, model um, of not only patient care, but definitely in athletes, right? Getting them not only to understand how they get better from their injury, but understand and keep them in the game. And not necessarily, it doesn't have to be always physical, but mentally getting them, uh, whether through meditation, whether through visual uh, imagery, um, and especially like uh, Nicole mentioned, you know, adding in their, their sports-specific stuff you know, as much as you can, whether it's with the soccer ball, uh, the balance drills, whatever it is, making sure that you can incorporate that in there. Um, guidance and support is, is above, above all else. When it comes to patient care, they want to feel like they're not only supported, but guide them. You know what I mean? Sometimes it can feel very frustrating to be an injured athlete trying to get back um, into not only back to your team, but back to the level that you were competing at. Um, and a big thing that we talked about was round table. I mean, the round table analogy that she mentioned was awesome. I mean, again, bringing in all the stakeholders from that athlete, making the athlete the center of uh, that decision. And then obviously, like we mentioned, sustainability and longevity, but also making sure that the context um, is what matters, right? Making sure that the person and the individual is being um, thought of, which is super important. We also mentioned a couple of pain points when it comes to um, not only as a practitioner, but athletes. Uh, for practitioners, a lot of times the healthcare system, where it's at right now with the insurance model, um, only gets the athlete to almost really it's just a bare minimum, right? Up to that 12 session mark where their uh, pain has reduced, they've gotten some strength back, right? But not fully um, capable to go back to the performance that they are naturally used to, right? So filling in that gray area, which is where you're starting to see a lot of cash-based models and a lot of these concierge uh, physical therapy models, like the one that uh, uh, Nicole has and the one we have here also at, at New is where you have, where you're filling in that gray area where, all right, their pain has reduced, but they're not fully able to go back to performance as, as they want to. And then getting them and providing, like uh, Nicole mentioned, is the, the athlete continuum, making sure that now, as they now progress, that they're ready to go back onto the field. And then even after that, um, we also mentioned, as I see here in my notes, that she has two wonderful dogs, one by <laughs> Rosie, one by Kai. Um, basically, they're two love, uh, basically love beasts. You know, they yeah. just like to, you know, give uh, cuddles, which is what I think uh, dogs should be doing. And then whatever the breed wants to do after that. Um, one of her most uh, sought out movements that she likes to do is the trap bar deadlift, which I thought was uh, pretty good because I like deadlifts as well. Um, and then, like she mentioned, she has prepared and has taught this continuing education course called Managing the Uninjured uh, Athlete, um, which is more so for the soccer athlete, but really anyone dealing and working with athletes um, can definitely benefit from this two-day course, um, working basically and teaching you how to not only understand the uh, requirements of an athlete, uh, and specifically here a soccer athlete, but also how to treat that person and how to treat that human. Because first of all, they're a human. Second of all, they're a person and then an athlete. Um, and then like we mentioned, she has a lot of courses uh, planned for the next uh, uh, half of the year. So if you're not, if, or should I say, if you're interested, and I think you should be, uh, this is definitely a go-to course uh, that Nicole has prepared and uh, is so uh, passionate about. And you can tell just from her speaking about it and the way she speaks about patient care and, and the uh, healthcare system and what she is doing to make a difference. Nicole, man, I, can't, I cannot express to you how thankful I am to have you on this podcast. You really brought in some valuable information, and I hope that the listeners were able to grasp all of it. If not, there is the rewind button. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. I appreciate you having me on. No problem. And I always like to end these uh, episodes with uh, a couple thank yous. One thank you not only is to you, uh, Nicole, on the, or the person on the, the other side of this mic, but also to the listeners for giving us the time, uh, just giving us the time for us to even share this information, share our knowledge, share experience uh, with guests such as Nicole that have the value and are giving us the time to, to share this. So I want to thank you, the listener, uh, for giving us the time, for making us part of your day, our morning or night, run, walk, 
whatever it is that you're doing right now, um, we really appreciate you giving us the time <clears throat> to share our voice. And then the other thank you I want to uh, shout out to is to our patients and to those athletes and to the people that we get to make this incredible impact to. Not only, again, not, not only to patients, but also to the people we get to teach um, through educational courses. So thank you for, for cherishing our knowledge, for cherishing our value, and for um, giving us the opportunity to do what we love. Because at the end of the day, if we don't, um, we can have all this passion and all this fire, but if uh, nobody wants, if there's nobody on the receiving end, then it's kind of like an empty room and just boring. Um, so thank you to not only to you, Nicole, for giving me the time and, you know, spending time on this podcast to, to learn more about you and to learn more about the way you approach uh, patient care and athlete care, but also to, to your courses. And thank you to, uh, to the listeners for giving us the time or giving us your time uh, to speak and to our patients and athletes um, and to those that we work with treating um, and helping and creating impact. Thank you. Um, this is Connect and Move Radio. I'm your host, Andy Fortuna, signing out. Hey there, Andy Fortuna here, and I hope you enjoyed that episode. It would mean the world to me if you took the time right now to leave a review for this podcast. I love the opportunity to connect and share information with you and would love the opportunity to do the same with passionate people just like you. So please take the time to leave a five-star review and help bring value to more people. See you on the next episode. Hold up.